On top of that, how much information have we gleaned, especially, you know, in terms of traumatic loss in the past decade or two, right? So if we grew up in an environment or we entered grief in an environment of this current illiterate society in that way, like how much more so was it for them, you know? And it's given me an opportunity to say, these things impacted me that way, not, hey, I saw you're grieving this way and I think it should be this way, right? No, it's this environment created this impact on me and it can sort of depersonalize, not depersonalize it, right? But it takes the you out of it and they can sort of say, yeah, we could have done better this way or yeah, gosh, how much has changed and, and reflect back, right? So, and not that I've ever been so great, but it's been helpful to be honest and then have them come back and say, this was really helpful to me or this helped me grow in this way or this helped me heal in this way. So I just feel like it creates an outlet to to not only change, but also for them to reflect in a way that they don't feel called out. Hey there, friends. Lisa Kefauver here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I just want to take a moment to give a special shout out to my regular GSB listeners. I absolutely love the notes you send me about how the show is impacting you. And of course, I appreciate all the reviews you leave on Apple Podcasts and the occasional selfie you send me after you buy your very own Grief as a Sneaky Bitch t-shirt too. If you're new to the show, first of all, welcome. You may wonder why I created a show like this, a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. I get that. When I was launching the show in 2019, more than a few people in my life said, you're gonna do what? But since you're tuning in, I don't think you'll be surprised to know that it has struck a real chord. I mean, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I'm no exception with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. I also spent a career as a social worker, as a narrative therapist, and now as founder of Reimagining Grief. And I just kept seeing how grief illiterate we were and the harm that was causing all of us. So through the show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm changing the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. In today's episode, I was joined by Lindsay Joy Taylor. Our conversation was deep and thoughtful as Lindsay shared how she came to be a motherless daughter at just one year old. Her mother's murder left a hole in her heart and her family. Yet one of the gifts her mom left her was her middle name, Joy. And as Lindsay continued to do the healing work of grief, she was flooded with memories of playing with her mother's jewelry. And in that moment, knew that the memorial and keepsake jewelry she had been making for herself and eventually for others would be called the Joyful Jewelry Box in honor of her. Hi, my name is Lindsay Joy Taylor, and I am the owner of the Joyful Jewelry Box, where I help you honor and remember your loved ones with remembrance jewelry and keepsakes. I am actually a motherless daughter and also providing community grief support to help keep her memory alive. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. It is such a pleasure to have this conversation here on the air, although we've talked, of course, offline many times over the past few years as we've gotten to know each other in the space. But welcome to Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. 
Thank you, Lisa. It's nice to talk to you again. (laughs) Yeah, it's wonderful to have you on the show. So you know, I think, because you're a listener of the show and our listeners, whether you're listening the first time or not, will know that I like to begin all of my conversations inviting people to think about what was their first and earliest memory of grief, because I believe we learn a lot about what grief should or shouldn't look like. And I'm using air quotes when I say those words. And just to help set the foundation for how people talk about the grief experience they're going to share on the show, I want to put out a caveat, and that is your first grief experience was the major loss of your life. So even with that in mind, can you walk us through what that loss was early on? And and later on, we'll maybe talk about how you've come to understand grief now as an adult, but maybe telling the story almost from a perspective of how you were going through grief and what you were seeing at that time. Absolutely. So thank you again for inviting me on the show to share my story. I appreciate that you feel like it'll speak to your audience. Um, As I mentioned before, I'm a motherless daughter, but more specifically, my mother was murdered when I was only one years old. So naturally, I don't have any explicit memories of her, you know, and I'm not someone who necessarily likes to label my grief. And yet it's, it's a very ambiguous experience, you know, to feel so preoccupied and to feel so burdened with this pain and yearning for somebody that that naturally I would, but I don't know who she is. I don't know the role that she had in my life or maybe to break that more down. She was my lifeline at the time, right? And so I didn't necessarily, developmentally speaking, I didn't have the the capability to understand what was happening. I just understood that my lifeline was now gone, right? And so that naturally was a very traumatic experience and has created the impact of trauma throughout my life. But more to your specific question in terms of what was my first experience of grief. And what were you observing from the adults in your life, too? You know, I think that really informs, especially at that young age, that you seep that into your kind of into your bones, right? Exactly. You know, in some ways, I have a very good memory of childhood. And in other ways, I don't really have memories of grieving for her specifically because I didn't understand what I lost right? Or kind of speaking to what I was a a moment ago. Of course, primarily speaking, I know that there's something significant missing. I look at other families as I'm growing up and learning about life, and, and I see that my family structure doesn't match. And my family didn't necessarily sweep it under the rug, but we didn't tend to our grief, per se. We didn't tend to the emotional quality of what was happening. I think that the nature of the trauma, you know, in terms of such a sudden loss and such a violent loss, naturally, all the adults in my life were severely traumatized and doing the best that they could. You know, meanwhile, trying to raise, you know, I had two older siblings, so trying to raise three children, one of them who is completely dependent upon you. And so I learned a lot of survival, right? I didn't learn that we sweep hard things under the rug per se, but I learned that we only talk about them in a certain way, right? I think that there were some complicated details that created this feeling of loyalty and secrecy. And and I was a child, right? So I'm trying to or I am intuiting everything, like you said, you know, absorbing those messages around me, but also trying to figure out what's my responsibility, what's my role, all of these really mature and grown up concepts without anybody to, to explain them and sort of walk me through it. And so in terms of like the earliest memory of grief, I feel like there's a few, 
you know, the one that, that that's conscious was my eighth grade graduation. There was a significant point in the ceremony where they gave you roses and you were supposed to go out to your family in the audience. And it was my father and a stepmother. And that was not a healthy or comforting relationship. And so I have a very strong memory of like, this is just all jacked up. You shouldn't be here. I don't want to hug you just because because I'm supposed to. You know, it was a really big understanding in terms of what you had lost. What I had lost and also what should have been there, the kind of support that I should have had, right? So it was kind of all of these losses encompassing in that. But naturally before that, there are sort of these little pockets of like, I don't know that at the time I thought, damn, I wish my mom was here, but it feels very related. You know, when we moved from my childhood home when I was six years old, and I remember that experience very well. And naturally, as an adult, I understand, like, I'm moving away from the only home that I know, the only connection to her, any sense of familiarity, you know, that can be a a big milestone for children anyway. So I remember all of the facets of that experience. And it felt more attached to, like, stuff, not like I'm sad I'm losing stuff, but I remember my dad giving some of my toys to other kids to sort of downsize and just really sort of, like, everything was going away, right? Um, So that felt kind of like the world was dropping out from underneath my feet, but that's only in hindsight and looking back at that, you know? And two, there's also, I was very close with one of my mom's sisters growing up. She was a significant figure for me and saved all, she saved all our artwork and cards and kind of all that. She was that aunt. She was that aunt. And then she's given it back to all of us kids, which is really pretty cool. And when I've looked through them, I have found like in school on Mother's Day, when they would have you make the cards and whatever, I made them for her. And I don't remember doing that. Um, and part of, you know, that feels very bittersweet. Part of me is so grateful that I had that experience or that I had an outlet in my life. Yeah. That I had her to, to fill that role, you know, and that there was a teacher, uh, aware enough to maybe recommend that, suggest that. But then, you know, on the other hand, what I know now doing the work that I do, right. I want to create an environment where, and again, take this with a grain of salt. We want boundaries. We don't want teachers coming in and, <laughs> you know, telling you how you need to do all the things. But, but really I would love, I would have loved them to say, well, let's make one for her anyway. You can take it home to your dad or you can put it in a special box or right. So sort of those rituals that help us connect to them. And, and the fact that she's still here, she's still a strong part of my life just because she, even though she died. Right. And so I feel like there's sort of like these, these touch points that build up to like an early understanding of grief or a lifelong understanding of grief, if you will. Yeah, that has evolved. You know, that I appreciate you sharing that story of writing the letter to your aunts, but also really thinking now in this grown-up version of yourself, how might it have been helpful for you to even write a letter to your mom, even though her body isn't on this earth. A few weeks ago, I had a couple of specialists who work in pediatrics and palliative and ICU, social workers and child life specialists, and they talked about that sort of helping families understand how to help children create those rituals and have those conversations and do those things. But again, the teacher maybe didn't know any better. I mean, like we live in this, you know, grief avoidant culture. So how would we have known? You know, you talked a little bit. I don't know if you'd be willing to sort of help us see a little bit more the ways in which because so many of all the adults and even your siblings in your life were also experiencing grief and trauma because this was a violent loss that happened in your lives 
We'll talk again maybe in a little bit from your sort of grown-up perspective now as a wise woman who knows more about what grief does to our brain and our bodies and how it lives in our cellular level. But back then, what did that then look like when you sort of looked at the adults behaving, speaking, expressing emotions or not in your lives? How were you witnessing sort of their walking embodiment of trauma because they all also lost and because they were adults, they understood maybe even to some other level you know, the catastrophe of this violent death. What were you seeing, you know, when you look back now and like, what were the behaviors or the... A lot of chaos, probably the easiest way to describe it. A lot of emotional dysregulation. There wasn't a lot of attunement. I think there was a lot of numbing. There was a lot of anger, you know, and helplessness. Which is, of course, a completely natural response to trauma, but (laughs) is very hard to be a parental figure when, you know, your role is to be the helper. Exactly. Well, and it's hard enough when you are emotionally available and are able to show up in that capacity for them and are informed about kind of all these facets of grief and especially childhood grief. But I also too, you know, it's important for me to distinguish, you know, we're all humans. None of this is ever me trying to be critical, but it's also, they were in the middle of a murder investigation on top of it. Right. And so as much as that emotional quality was really chaotic and just very uncertain, but ultimately, you know, I was still cared for the best that they could. Right. And so it's so interesting to have these sort of extreme parallels. And I think what it's done is that it's given me a deep amount of awareness and compassion for what we're all carrying in our grief, how we carry it all so differently. I think there's also too, and and this is a fine line, I want to pick my words carefully, but I think there's also, it communicated to me a responsibility that we actually need to engage with and tend to our grief, because if not, we're going to pass it on to somebody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think that I took on the burden of that for honestly my entire family, you know, naturally, whether it's as a result of or whether I would have been anyway, I'm very much an empath. And so I felt a responsibility to sort of be a container for all of this big, strong energy. Adult grief. Yeah. But again, not having the understanding to be able to communicate that or ask for help or or also knowing that maybe the help wasn't going to be helpful. Yeah. Right. And so it was a lot of contradiction, maybe is a good way to put it. Right. But it taught me really how to grow up and and take responsibility for my pain and the things that I need to to process, you know, so that I'm not bringing junk into my relationships. And that doesn't mean that grief is going to ruin your relationships or do those things. But I think when we ignore that pain, it ne- it, it demands to be seen. It shows felt. up whether you want it to or not. Yeah. Right. So I think that that was a very clear piece for me that I did. I appreciate this question because I don't even think I realize it until I'm answering it to you. But right. There was always an understanding of like, it should, I would hear certain things or, and it was, there was like a reflex, like a physical, I just don't know if I, I agree with that, right? And so helping me hold space for that and compassion for for what they were capable of and what I wanted for myself moving forward in my relationships and to help other people who are carrying grief in their relationships too. So yeah, that's really important. And I want to reflect back to something that you said, Lindsay, and and kind of say this directly to our listeners too. I, I've mentioned it before when I asked this question, when I try to unpack 
the sort of familial roots of our grief education. Of course, we learn broadly from our sort of broader culture, which frankly, we learn not very helpful stuff, right? Get over it, move on, been in a better place, all the garbage we hear. But I want to sort of reflect back to you and also reflect to our listeners that when I asked this question about how were the adults in our lives modeling grief, and and sometimes I add that layer of the question, do you think it was sort of impacted you positively or negatively as you navigate grief in your adult life, is not an invitation to bash our parents or aunts or uncles or grandparents, because I agree 1000%, they're all doing the best they can with what they learned about what it means to hold space and process trauma and grief. And so to me, we can't choose a path forward for ourselves until we make visible what it is that we are carrying forward. Until we understand and unpack what our own grief beliefs are, we don't have the power to say, huh, does that really serve me anymore? Or do I want to maybe set that down and find something new? That's, of course, the work I do when I work with people one-on-one, but that's part of the mission even of this podcast today. So I appreciate that you were mindful to name, hey, my dad and the other adults were doing the best they could given a absolutely unreal set of circumstances. And I get to say, I love you. I know you were doing your best and I want to do some things differently. Absolutely. And I think that's it's an excellent point, right? Because on top of that, how much information have we gleaned, especially, you know, in terms of traumatic loss in the past decade or two, right? So if we grew up in an environment or we entered grief in an environment of this current illiterate society in that way, like how much more so was it for them, you know? And it's given me an opportunity to say, these things impacted me that way, not, hey, I saw you're grieving this way and I think it should be this way, right? No, it's this environment created this impact on me and it can sort of depersonalize, not depersonalize it, right? But it takes the you out of it and they can sort of say, yeah, we could have done better this way or yeah, gosh, how much has changed and and reflect back, right? So, and not that I've ever been so great in my delivery, (laughs) you know, there's certainly been missteps over the years, but it's been helpful to be honest and then have them come back and say, this was really helpful to me, or this helped me grow in this way, or this helped me heal in this way. It creates a dialogue that's a lot less adversarial or something. Yeah. Yeah. Not that the intention was to ever be an attack, but, you know, we can go on the defense immediately, you know, for a variety of understandable reasons. So I just feel like it creates an outlet to not only change, but also for them to reflect in a way that they don't feel called out, so to speak. Yeah, I absolutely appreciate that. You know, I think, as you said, we're learning so much more in the past few decades about the epigenetics, really, of trauma and how it's passed down in generations. And then also the sort of like practices and culture that happens, you know, generation and families. And so I think it is important for us to be able to make choices for ourselves about how we want to hold compassion for ourselves in our own loss, but also to be able to Hold people accountable for certain behaviors, of course. This isn't necessarily saying if someone hurt you, you have to forgive. But to sort of see that, you know, the generation before this and the generation before that showed up doing the best they can. My dad's a survivor of the Holocaust. Like how he shows up for, you know, pain and grief was in a very different way than somebody like me who grew up in the safety of, you know, the U.S. and a, you know, middle class family, et cetera. So I just think about, and now I'm raising a daughter who's 17, who has experienced something very different than what I experienced growing up. So yeah, we do the best we can. I just like to 
remind us all that it's okay that we don't have to stay stuck or attached to the ways in which we witnessed grief or witnessed emotional life. Or if you grew up in a family who was like, don't talk about it anymore, or you can't show sadness or anger, it's not a betrayal of your love for the family to be able to say, wait, let me take a moment to examine my grief beliefs to see if they're really serving me. And you will know if they're not serving you, if you are having unhealthy relationships, if you're hypervigilant, if you are, you know, there's lots of signs how you would know that it doesn't serve you. And then do the work of saying, this helps, this doesn't, I'm going to set this thing down, I'm going to learn something new. Yeah. Well, and you know, that's a great point. And another piece, or maybe going back to the question, a more direct answer would be, there was very much an environment of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Because I think there's a variety of factors that contributed to that. But ultimately, we never... We never caught her killer, right? And so there was, I I don't know how much I believe in the concept of closure, but there was a forced resignation in terms of how do you pick up life and move forward with this never-ending, devastating question that likely won't get answered, right? And so it was very much of, yeah, well, that sucks. Pick up and move on. We're warriors. We're survivors. We don't let shit get in our way. And so that was what was really demonstrated a lot less more than Uh, more than the emotional life, just more that like, hey, we don't have time to sit in this wondering and to and to feel sorry for ourselves that we don't know the answer to this question. Yeah. Yeah. And the layers of of all the questions and the, the anger and the sadness and, you know, all the extra that comes with that. It just was very much we don't we don't have time for that. <laughs> it's time to pick up and move on. And yet at the same time, I can see the contradiction in that because like anytime all of the family gets together, we'll talk about mom, which is wonderful, but it's rarely about necessarily who she was as a person, which is understandable as children didn't get that opportunity, but it's much more about the circumstances of what happened. And that to me is what is clear about where we're at, if that makes sense where people get stuck in that thing because you haven't been to know people are moving through it would be to hear them being able to recall the positive memories and the joyful moments. And I know she named you Joy. You can share a little bit later that story of giving you that middle name because Joy was important to her. But I think that's a sign of when people can sort of start to carry in that positive way, the memory of someone's life forward as opposed to the way the person died, whether it was a violent death, as in your mom's case, or even a predictable cancer death or something else. When we come back, Lindsay explores what it was like to be the motherless daughter as a very young child and how she learned to navigate how and when and with how much detail she shared her story, the story of her mother's murder. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Lindsay Joy Taylor. Now, tell me a little bit for those folks who are listening, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about for our listeners to think about who have young or middle school children age about how you were helped or how now you look back, wish you were helped on how to be able to know when to tell your story. Because every time you start in a new class, you do the little stupid family tree and then people meet you and they want, then the, you know, kids say the darndest things or sometimes the cruelest things. And then they ask you, where's your mom? And how did you get supported or learn how to navigate, you know, that? I'll just share a quick antidote. My, my daughter was seven when my husband died. 
It's very quick time between diagnosis and death, about two weeks. And I remember she returned to school within two weeks, you know, it was right at the end of the summer. And I remember a friend, Eric and I adopted our daughter, Lily. And I remember somebody asked her and Lily, you know, I tried to prepare her. You can tell people or not, but it's, we lived in a small town. I mean, people knew. And the girl said to my daughter, and I don't think I've gotten over it. My daughter's 17 now. Well, I don't know why you're sad anyways, because you're adopted. He wasn't your real dad. Which, as you can imagine, I still have hackles going up my neck and I want to go punch this little girl who didn't know any better. But all of that to say is, as parents, we want to help our children navigate this unknown, unforeseen circumstance and that they have to do this with kids who are developmentally don't have their story straight either. So how did you, looking back, navigate when to tell people, how much to tell people, Did your parents kind of, or your dad or your aunt help you kind of put up those guardrails? How did you, how did you navigate that? The short answer is I don't remember very well. (laughs) I don't think it was addressed. It's interesting you bring that up. It's, it's come up around me or in the community, the grief community lately. And I've been thinking about that. And I remember mainly just sort of saying, I don't have a mom. Hmm. I don't have memories of what the reaction to that was. So whether or not that was blocking out negative reactions or just... Sometimes kids are bored. They're like, okay, never mind. You know, move on. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, I am very knock on wood grateful that mostly people have not said this horrendous shit to my face. I'm sure people have all sorts of opinions, but like... That little girl to your daughter, maybe she didn't know better, but we should be taught kindness and boundaries. And you know what I mean? Like there's just a, so ultimately I figured it out on my own. And I think though, that there were touch points outside of me that I'm not aware of because I was pulled from class and did play therapy. I think I was maybe in third or fourth grade. I don't remember any taught anybody talking to me about it ahead of time. But I would get pulled from class for about an hour, maybe like once a week. And I would sometimes it was with some other kids and sometimes it was by myself. And I remember the the therapist's name was Mrs. Houseman. I mean, to this day, I, you know, there's pieces of me that want to go look her up. And and so that was a positive outlet for me in terms of support that I, I was on somebody's radar for some reason, right? And I can't articulate why or how that came about, but it was still really helpful for me to feel seen and to feel acknowledged, to be given attention, you know, regardless of whether or not the context was my mother or, or the play therapy, or, I mean, you know, my mother's death is the context of the play therapy, but the exercises are, don't always revolve around that. And so I really appreciated that. I felt like those little pockets of support, however they came to be, helped me navigate and figure it out. I would say in general, I was was vague for most of my life. I don't have a mom. I lost her when she was, she died when I was little. I definitely grew up feeling like, and I would say this is more societally speaking, probably a little bit less for my family, but there was that responsibility piece that came in. You know, it was a messy story, right? And so there wasn't a lot of room to elaborate without like all sorts of things, right? People naturally want to have questions that's a human response, but I don't, I don't have a situation where I can always answer those. I don't have a situation where they can always tactfully ask those questions. 
respect our boundaries. And it, it very much became, you know, if I'm being honest, it was very much a soap opera. I very much have a soap opera of a loss. And that's, that's hard. And there's an understanding already, no matter who you are, of picking and choosing what we're going to disclose, not only, you know, for my, my own boundaries and for respecting my family and all of that, but also because you, you get it. We're also taught not to make other people uncomfortable. Yeah, that. And you get into a position where then the soap opera comes out and then they're just befuddled and they're like all over themselves and they don't know what to say to you. And so now I have to take care of you. I have to tell you it's okay. It was a long time ago. I've dealt with it. Insert whatever, right, to make them feel better. And so there was all these layers of... <laughs> that it wasn't just like, do I disclose or do I not disclose? It's like... What energy do I have for all of these things and and all of that? Which I think is true of so many people's grief story. I'm sure so many of our listeners are thinking about that every time. You know, I, I just remember every time I went to a new work meeting or I went to a new social gathering and there was somebody new, although I tried not to go to too many new places early on after my husband died. I always had that moment when I looked somebody in the eye and I was meeting them for the first time. It's like, do I or don't I? How much not enough. Can they handle it? Do I have the energy? You know, and there's so like, even if you don't choose to disclose, I do feel especially early, I mean, as an adult, but I can imagine this happened to you kind of over the course of your growing up life where you have to make that calculation each time, which is why sometimes it's just comfortable to be around fellow grievers or people who already knew, know you because you don't have to start using that identity marker. Exactly. You know, every time you meet somebody new. Yeah. Well, and I this brought up a story for me that the sort of relates to the the example that you talked about with your daughter, but ultimately I I was in my teens, a good friend said to me one day, just out of the blue, <laughs> I don't believe that it was intended to be contentious or harmful, but it was and basically said, "You don't know everything about your mom's death." And I was like, "What the what?" Right? And so it created this outlet where People think that they have a right to help you figure out your own damn story, right? And, um, you know, first of all, I'm sorry that happened. And second of all, I think that, again, brings up this experience that so many people have that people, for whatever their motivations, when either because you're telling your story or they're just aware of what you've experienced with loss, feel it's somehow their responsibility or that they actually have the skills to come fix things for you, right? To come make meaning for you or help you get to some new understanding about your loss or your grief. Again, mostly not malicious, sometimes probably, but mostly out of some either self-preservation because the idea of what happened to you scares them. And so actually their effort to fix you is somehow to like appease their own fear or because they and or I would say it could be and <laughs> and they also maybe care about you and they can see you're struggling and we're not good at holding space for people and just acknowledging their pain. We want to somehow come in and make some meaning or tell a story or provide a solution to like, quote unquote, make it okay. Absolutely. And I think that that experience gave me a little bit of conviction kind of actually to bring this all full circle to the question, right? So growing up, I, was, I tried to like figure it out. I was more vague. I think moving into my teens and early adulthood, I probably, and a little bit from that experience, I wanted to take that ownership back and I was probably disclosing more too fast, you know, but I was also learning the adult version in that season of my life too, right? Yes. 
also sharing a lot sometimes as a trauma response too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. And so now where I'm at now, all of those experiences have sort of convicted me to be able to say this matters. It needs the attention. It deserves the space and I can give it to it. You know, all of these people may not be able to, but I can. And my doing so helps me sort of modulate those trauma responses. Right. When I am tending to my own grief, I don't need to tell the whole world, the whole story. Yeah. Right. If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I am a trauma survivor a few times over. And so I totally get that. And I think for for people, you know, trauma and grief aren't necessarily, you know, hand in hand. But many of us who have experienced grief have also either in relation to that grief or some other experience in life had trauma. And I think that's that, you know, that's a yet another reminder to everybody that everyone's path in their grief is going to look a little bit different. So for some people, it's more important to be able to come forward with certain trusted parties and tell more of your story. For other people, actually telling your story a lot might be a sign of that you haven't really attended to your some of the traumatic aspects of your grief. And so to just find grace and space and permission, you know, to be able to explore that for yourself, I think is so hugely important. You know, I know- to develop your own boundaries too. And to develop your own boundaries because one of the things you were talking about is that, when you're living in a household that has some traumatized adults or just kind of dysregulation and dysfunction, part of what we don't learn is healthy boundaries. And when we don't have mirrored attachment and other other things, then it's hard to know. And then that seeps into the things that we, you know, into the relationships that we build. I know you started the show by introducing yourself, and I want to talk about that in a little bit about why you've chosen to step into the space around you know, memorial jewelry and also just being a fellow grief advocate, et cetera. But I know you spent some time there for a while or or had had sought some studies, right? And I think it was marriage life marriage counseling, right? As a so what kind of brought you there? And then what was the realization that like mm, this is maybe not the path for me? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say my interest in it or my interest my interest, yeah, was in my my teens. My sort of joke is, you know, I wanted to be the next Dr. Laura. <laughs> if you are familiar with the time, you know, she, she was super popular and then was super not popular, <laughs> but more of like the idea of really providing space for individuals to be seen and heard. My approach would be much different, but you know, ultimately like that was the first clue of terms of really wanting to help people that I had a listening ear, that that was something that was important to me. And so I started to study psychology. I did some gate courses in high school. And as much as I was interested, it didn't feel like the right fit. So I went to school for communication studies and I loved it, but still was kind of feeling that psychology piece, that draw back to mental health and grief. And, and again, I think just really processing and going through the season of your own. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so then I jumped back into the psychology uh, school. Then I went back for my degree in marriage and family therapy. And I thought I was going to be a therapist, a counselor. And the program itself was incredible. I absolutely love the work. I'm. It's so neat to see Compared to, you know, everything I've described, you know, of my experience growing up to see the support and the knowledge that's out there now, like, that's just really incredible. And yet, it's going back to the attachment that you talked about and the boundaries and relationships, that was a really big, that was the hardest part of 
therapy for me as a professional, right? You know, naturally, I do actually have attachment trauma, you know, in the rupture from my mother and the subsequent sort of neglect and other experiences that followed that. And so it became really clear that I could, I couldn't be boundaried in the therapy role. I was taking their stuff and I was carrying it with me everywhere, kind of what I did with my family. And how did you come to discover that? I mean, I in the social work school, we always have clinical supervision as we are in early professionals so that we have places to help process that. Did you Do you think you were clued in early on, hey, maybe I'm not able to draw boundaries? Did you have sort of professional mentorship support to help you sort of see that? How do you think you came to recognize that? Yes and no. I hadn't necessarily been diagnosed yet, right? So while I was in school was when I really started to understand the attachment trauma piece, right? And so I had been in therapy before that, but it was never really trauma focused. And then in terms of my mentors, you know, they were focusing more on the mechanics, right? Like you're talking too much or you're talking too much about yourself or right. The mechanics in terms of like running a session. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in hindsight, now I can see like, I just, I was so triggered, right? It was just the attachment was constantly being activated. I wasn't sure how to compartmentalize all of these really heavy experiences, because quite honestly, I hadn't necessarily done my own, right? Or I shouldn't say that. I hadn't tended to the most significant pieces yet. And I think, you know, this is sort of a tangent, but I think it's important too. But, and I was someone who had done therapy and my program actually did require therapy as a graduation requirement. Most schools don't, which is baffling to me, right? And that's as someone who everything I just said had already had that exposure and it just wasn't quite the right lens yet. You know what I mean? Sometimes it takes, and and ultimately I'm not going to jump in the lake, (laughs) you know, the lake of trauma to start with. You got to build that safety and, you know, that ego strength to go into those really heavy traumatic places. So ultimately I don't, it's sort of an ambiguous answer, but I couldn't, I just couldn't regulate my own stuff. My reactions were really big. I was really disrupted after sessions. I would think about them constantly. Not that your therapist doesn't care about you and is not thinking about you when they're, they shouldn't be thinking about you 24 seven. Exactly. Right. I felt burdened by the, experience. I didn't feel like I was equipping them with skills, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so it just became overwhelming. Now, years later, after doing all of this work, I have the language to sort of say, I was just way triggered. Activated. By my, yes, exactly. But at the time, it just, I knew it wasn't a right fit. I felt really overwhelmed. I didn't feel happy. It wasn't this natural sort of yeah, this is a really stressful and busy season of life, but this is a goal that I that I know is a right fit, you know? Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us because this this show has listeners, of course, who, who are lay people who've experienced grief, but so many of our listeners are, are people like you and I who have worked in various aspects of the grief space or grief advocates, death doulas, and, and that. And so I appreciate you helping to make visible um, both the sort of work that's required of all of us in the sort of working world to be able to attend to our own grief and our own trauma in ways so that we are caring for ourselves, but also have, you know, enough regulated space and boundaries to be able to show up and care for the people that we're caring for. And also to know when is enough is enough and when need, people need to step back. I always admire my fellow grief advocates like yourself and others who when I see sort of come forward on, let's say, a social media channel or even on their podcast to say, hey, I'm recognizing some of my own stuff. I need to step back, you know, for a while. And I think we need to celebrate that more. We need to celebrate people listening 
inwardly to that part of their, you know, their nervous system, to their inner soul and to their inner knowing. We all have this inner wisdom that we kind of tap down and quiet and stuff in the corner because it doesn't really fit with our productivity beyond 24-7 world that we live in. So I appreciate that you really made visible the way you were sort of able to recognize, hey, this isn't for me. I need to step back and, you know, attend to my own nurturing. I need to attend to my own attachment, to my own trauma, so that I can show up in my life, both professional and personal, in the way that you wanted to be, you know. And to make sure that I'm not doing harm. Yeah. Right? Um, and that was a big piece of the program in general, right? In hindsight, well, two things. I appreciate you saying that because there very much was a, you know, there's a piece of like, I just spent this much on, you know, higher education and I'm not going to use it. Now, I know. Right. Like that's just, there was certainly an element of like, except you learned so much that, that you use. I absolutely this day. did. I did. But that pressure that you're talking about exactly because it wasn't normalized for us to say, damn, I'm changing my mind. You know, it's okay to change my mind and honor what I need. But it also, too, I'm so glad that I did it because it was a goal of mine. My cohort was wonderful. All the things I did learn. But it also gave me a very clear picture into how grief illiterate we still are. Yeah. Right? That I have a higher degree that would allow me to be able to move forward. I mean, obviously, more clinical hours and whatnot. I can't just go be a therapist. But the point is, for me to have that level of training and understanding, and there was like nothing about grief still, right? The grief gets like absorbed. Like a chapter. Well, it gets absorbed by everything else. Does that yeah. make sense? Oh, yeah. Right? It's like an undertone of all these other things. You're like, that's the root. Now, why are we not going to the root? <laughs> you know? And so that gave me a big understanding in terms of being able to come out this other side and and do this work now, right? To be, have an informed and um, informed and educated understanding of where we're falling short, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And where we're not naming grief and where the harm is when we don't name things grief. You know, I had the I had the a phenomenal women from being here human on my show earlier this season who are both trained social workers like myself. And one of the things we were railing against is how in the social work profession and training education, grief in itself isn't a required course, which is in, absolutely ridiculous because 100 percent of us grieve multiple times in our lives. And when I look back at the years that I spent as a, as a practicing therapist, as a narrative therapist, and I was seeing people, you know, who were presenting with diagnoses like bipolar disorder or, you know, depression or anxiety or et cetera, or working with people in case management who are dealing with precarious housing, homelessness, et cetera. I think about all the ways in which, thankfully, I had had, I had self-studied some courses and some training around grief because so much of what other people were pathologizing and labeling as their behavior as somehow, you know, medication worthy. Not that medication doesn't have a place. It absolutely does. And I think there was so, I am grateful that I really was able to sort of help name and unpack for people losses where it wasn't maybe so obvious because it wasn't like I'm coming in today because yesterday, you know, a death happened in my life. So I agree. I think at the professional level, and that's why I see so many people out in the space, I think we're starting to come into a more grief literate culture, a more honest because of the work of, like I said, the, you, the folks at Being Here Human, so many great podcasters, writers, thinkers, advocates in this work. But, but I think we 
again, back to where we started, it's like we can't do the healing work we need to do. We can't show up and hold space for other people, whether it's as a in a professional role or just as a neighbor, a sister, a friend, whatever, if we can't name what it is that we're experiencing that, you know, that's why narrative therapy and, and the power of words has been always so important to me. If we can't name it, then we can't choose what to do with it, you know, and so I appreciate that. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, I asked Lindsay how she went from the nonprofit mental health world to memorial jewelry and why the Joyful Jewelry Box is healing both for her and for her customers. As you heard at the top of the show, it's my mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. Either through this episode or as a longtime listener of the show, or because you follow the writing I do daily at Reimagining Grief on social media, what you probably already know about me is I'm a metaphor junkie. I found metaphor to be an incredibly powerful tool in my career helping others navigate the pain and heartache of grief, loss, and trauma. It's actually been truly instrumental in my own healing too. That's why I'm thrilled to share that I'm in the middle of writing my own book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Don't worry, I got your back. I am compiling all the years of insights, wisdoms, and metaphors I found most useful so that you can feel seen and held in your grief. Plus, it will be in bite-sized, easy-to-digest doses because I know the last thing I wanted to do in my early grief was read a big, thick, dense book. If you'd like to sign up for my newsletter to keep up to date about the book, or perhaps you're seeking support for your grief through one-on-one sessions or through group meditation, you can learn more by visiting reimagininggrief.com after today's show. So you were clear, you know, of course, maybe it didn't happen in an aha Oprah kind of aha moment, but you were clear at some point. This isn't a path for me. I know you've shared before in writing and and in our conversations, you know, you were working for a nonprofit, they had a layoff, you were home. And so you're, you're at that time trying to think, A, what can I do just as a profession to sort of earn a living? But you also had the spark of the story about your mom and about being immersed in the jewelry that you, that she left behind and thus, and thus began the work that you're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about that discovery moment and, and how that's flourished and, and kind of. I mean, feel free to share it with us and our listeners, of course, the beautiful work that you do, but also more about like what was your own evolution in the act of creating Mm -hmm. the Joyful Jewelry Box? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you nailed it correctly. So once I changed my mind, I ended up doing some nonprofit work in mental health and I absolutely loved it. Um, Naturally, just as we see, the funding is not what it should be. And so shortly before that, or how should I say this? They were they were transparent about that with me. So I knew about six months ahead of time, kind of that this transition was coming. Um, and I had <clears throat> made jewelry in the past more as a hobby with my best friend. And I connected with the local jewelry designer who needed help for the holiday season. Right. And so it really was sort of this like serendipitous dropped right into my lap at the right time. Yeah. And so I got to really kind of have this creative outlet swift shift gears a little bit in terms of this constant pursuit of mental health. And, and ultimately she said, this would be, you know, a flexible thing for you in this transition helped me get an Etsy shop up. 
yada, yada. But as I was doing that, I wanted to infuse meaning into it, right? I really wanted kind of all these pieces to fall into the work that I was doing in my life, not necessarily into this Etsy shop, but I just knew that I wasn't. There had to be some maybe more meaning or more infusion of where you've been and and how you're carrying that forward. Yeah, I just I just knew that wasn't quite the right answer yet. And so I so the name started as Joyful Jewelry, right? My middle name is Joy and I wanted to honor my mom in that way. And it's just funny one night I was in the bath sort of churning and I was like, it's not the right name. It's not the right name. It's not the right name. And sort of like, you know, in an, like an, an Oprah. Uh-huh, yeah. Mom. I was like the joyful jewelry box. And all of a sudden, all of these memories, like literally kind of flooded me in terms of how much I used to play with my mom's jewelry box growing up. Right. And so it started to like all these little puzzle pieces started to come together in terms of like, That I did have this childlike, intuitive, playful nature or curiosity about my grief. That I did have this healthy way of trying to understand who she was and infuse her into my life, right? And so that's how the name changed. And that was sort of how I knew, wait a minute, mom is the connection here, right? How do we sort of evolve this? And, you know, then it went back to kind of, you know, the Dr. Laura and me and wanting to help other people and help them feel seen and supported in their own grief. And so that was when I took a hard left and then decided, you know, instead of just designing jewelry on a whim, now I was doing remembrance and memorial jewelry to help other grievers honor and remember their loved ones, right? But beyond that, you know, what's special for me is that I do have her jewelry and her jewelry box, but we did have a house fire and I've lost, we lost all of her other belongings. I mean, that was really hard. And I know that there's so many heirlooms for all sorts of reasons that people don't necessarily get to where their person's belongings, right? And so now I, what I do, the, the concept behind it is, is I'll take our special symbols and signs from our loved ones. For example, my family, it's dragonflies. And I will take those and personalize them with your birthstones and their initials and really give you this tangible keepsake to wear out in the world and keep their memory alive. And um, it was just really cool how it all sort of like unfolded in front of me, right? It wasn't like I was forcing any of this meaning. It was like these little touch points would drop in and then I would move this direction. But even more so about that, Then I started to really kind of think about that joy piece, right? And how that fit in and beyond just the fact that, well, my mom loved this name and it was important to her for me. Well, no, specifically, you know, my family, if it hasn't been clear, it's kind of just been through a lot of seasons. And so when I was born, it was a stressful season for them. And my understanding is that the joy that they felt, I mean, naturally having children is always going to bring you deep joy, but the contradiction is what I understand, right? That it was so hard. You know, they were going through something really hard also. Yeah. Yeah. And this really created a lot of perspective and strength and, and faith and, and literal joy for them. Right. And so it's a beautiful story, but I don't know that I was able to relate to it or tap into it growing up. You know, I was, it, it honestly felt contradictory. You know, I felt very jaded. I felt like I'm not joyful. My mother was murdered. I don't even remember her. This is not me, right? There were very rebellious sort of resentful pieces to it. And then as time went on, as I grew up and understood who she is, who she was and what her, her life was like and what's important to me and how to 
carry those pieces forward. You know, I realized that she sort of gave me the lesson in that, you know, that, that I don't have to. And you learned it when you were, when you were ready too. you know, this is this piece about doing our grief work is that, you know, we can only receive things when we kind of are ready for to do that. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it, now it's a very prideful piece for me in terms of not only am I honoring what it was for her and how she felt and, and, and how important I was to her, but really the message in terms of, I don't have to feel guilty for the good in my life. I can hold space for, for all of the pain and all of the grief that has literally been there for a lifetime. You know, that's another piece that I want to communicate to individuals through my story. Grief and joy can coexist, people. Don't yeah. believe the BS that you hear out there that like somehow joy is a betrayal of your grief and that that grief means you can never have joy. I just, I, I love that about your work and about your message because I think it's just one of the, one of the most harmful myths about grief is that we can't, that both can't co- coexist. And I would say when you do the work of grief, that actually is what allows you to connect with joy some in some ways more than people who kind of just try to shove grief in the in the corner absolutely and it's honoring them right i'm never i'm never somebody to come out and tell you that you need to be happy they wouldn't want you to be sad no none of that none of that. that you know what i mean and yet and yet they want you to be happy that is something I will never question and doubt. They want you to be able to move through the pain that you're feeling. They want you to remember them and keep you keep them in your life. But they want you to be happy, you know? And so it's one of the ways that we can honor them. And I think, too, but more importantly, it's intentional. I think there's this idea that, like, one day we wake up and the, the grief isn't so overwhelming that now I can feel joy again. That's not it. Absolutely not. It's I am holding space for both and I'm allowing room for the joy to come in with the grief, right? And so I think that that's what's really important for people to understand is that you have to want it and you have to work for it. And you have to be open to receiving it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and to opening yourself up for it. Yeah. Which takes practice. You know, I think, again, we're not really, we're taught happy in that bullcrap, you know, hallmark happy which has this illusion that it's like you get happy and you stay there in this elevated state. We're not really taught joy actually comes in like tasting ice cream for the first time in the year or, you know, like whatever, just, you know, turning, looking up in the sunrises right there. Joy is in moments, in bits, in pieces. And as you said, it can happen in places that you least expected or even on the heels of maybe a day of deep sorrow. And I would actually argue that that's what it is. I I believe that joy is very different than happiness. I know that the, saying that sort of taps into Christianity in a big way, but that's not necessarily how I mean it. I just truly believe that joy is that contentment that we feel along with all the stuff that's wrong. That's beautiful. Lindsay, I feel like we could have many, many more of these conversations, and I'm sure that we will over the years. I'm so honored to know you, to be in this space alongside of you. I appreciate the vulnerability and the honesty in sharing the various aspects of your story and the growth and the learning that you've done. And I know for sure that our listeners have gleaned something for themselves, either about their own grief or maybe how they might want to think about showing up for somebody else in theirs. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find out about you and the work that you're doing? 
thank you again for having me, Lisa. I really appreciate it. I really respect the work that you're doing. I know our experience is really different, but you know, just I respect the way that you have shown up for your daughter and her grief. I know that she was a child when it started, and I know that you're managing your own grief along with it. And so I just, I really respect all that you're doing, and I appreciate that that we've connected and you feel that this is valuable to your audience. You can find me at the Joyful Jewelry Box. I am most active on Instagram. That's where I do all of my community grief support and where I share about my work and then also provide, you know, a lot of grief teaching and whatnot. So, and actually, sorry, and my website is thejoyfuljewelrybox.com if you want to browse any of the jewelry or products that I offer as well. That's awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us today. I look forward to continuing this conversation in the future and I'll be talking to you again soon. Perfect. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Well, we've come to the end of another open, honest, and reflective conversation on this show. I'm grateful to Lindsay for being transparent about what she's learned about surviving the violent death of her mother and the healing work she's done in her own grief journey and how she's using it to help bring joy to others. I want to thank Gail Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. I also want to give a special thank you to the team at Studio Pod for producing today's episode. As we close the show, I'd love to ask you a quick favor. As I mentioned, I love hearing from my listeners. After this, can you head over to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might just need it the most. Thank you again for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my lovely guest, Lindsay Joy Taylor. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. And until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>